Hello, welcome to Careers Talk. I'm Kerry Eustace. In this week's podcast, we ask, what does it take to get a journalism job today? Later in the show, we'll be getting trainee Guardian reporter Josh Halliday and newbie FHM staff writer Chris Mandel, both recent graduates, to share their career stories. Plus, Julian Lindley throws caution to the wind and encourages one board grad to ditch their dead-end pensions job and move to New York. But before all that, we've got a roundup of this week's careers news. I'm joined by Harriet Minter and Ali White, who is back after a holiday in Africa. Hello. Welcome back, Ali. Oh, thank you very much. How was your holes? It was fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> sick and neatly tanned. Um, Al, yeah, you go first. What's your story? Sure. Um, it's probably no uh, surprise to our graduate listeners, but increasing numbers of graduate leavers are taking non-graduate jobs, according to research published by the Association of Accounting Technicians. And what the research found was six months after leaving university, about 40% of last year's graduates were underemployed in lower school jobs, up from about 30% four years ago. So as it, the name suggests, underemployment is defined as where a graduate is in low-skilled work, where a degree isn't required required and again the sort of degree disciplines that you know graduates find themselves in this predicament like history and philosophy are the most likely to be underemployed and then unsurprisingly the more vocational degrees like medicine dentistry and veterinary science are like they're most likely to be in employment the study estimates as well that 59,000 of last year's graduates have not found jobs at all. But we've got some words of inspiration from one of my favourite bloggers on the site, Sarah Barnard, who's talking about eight reasons to love your stopgap job. And she's in a call centre at the moment. She said it's good because it's easy and there's something refreshing <laughs> about being able to take on a task which isn't trying or nor testing, you know. And then it's better than doing nothing. You know, income is income, even if it may seem meagre at the moment or less than you feel you deserve. And, you know, she says you gain extra skills, even if it's job specific, like learning the phonetic alphabet in a call centre. And then you sort of maybe get more transferable skills like customer service. And as well, it's a good bridge between university and working life. You know, it's a less stressful way to get used to the harsh reality of work, really, the 36 hour week. If you get yourself into a good discipline, then hopefully when you get a job that you really want, you'll just sort of go in sailing. Yeah, it's good to hear someone looking on the bright side. And I should say that Sarah's recently got a copywriting job. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, oh, great. a pharmaceutical company. So, you know, her, you know, enthusiasm. Yeah, That's her amazing. optimism as well. Um, okay, my story was um, inspired by a blog we had again on careers by Rosie Percy. And she has um, been rejected from 200 jobs and counting. Um, and she doesn't always get any feedback and she was kind of uh, discussing how it would be really useful and how after all of those rejections she started to tailor her applications and she's developed a resource of you know, some sector specific CVs. But in response to this, our job goddess, the lovely Claire Whitmell, our CV expert, has compiled some techniques and ideas that graduates can use to stand out for the crowd because she argues that in today's market where competition is so tough, tailoring your applications isn't already always enough because the, the sheer volume that people are receiving, what you actually need to do is make sure that your CV looks a little different to everybody else or sounds a little different to everybody else's to catch somebody's eye. And she's got some great techniques here. So 
she points out that most application materials follow a similar format. They're going to have similar headings and sections. So she recommends that we follow the strategies that copywriters and marketeers use. So she says use descriptive but specific headings on your CV. So whereas at the moment you ha- might have a section that says professional experience, she says why not uh, try impact or recognition as subject heading as well and list sort of similar achievements under that. Um, another one she suggests is using numbers or how-to in titles. And, you know, we know this works on Twitter and for bloggers quite a lot mm-hmm. to catch people's attention. It's usually quite Absolutely. a fun or a quick read. So she says, um, why not spice up your covering letter with a headline like three reasons to hire me and sort of give them three punchy reasons to do it. Um, and also, she says, if you're applying speculatively or emailing a CV over, rather than putting in your subject line something like this is my application or inquiry for editorial vacancies, you know, use that space as well as you would your CV. So put something English grad with sharp writing skills or experienced marketeer looking for, you know, a step up. You know, there's lots of places where you can push your skills. And again, somebody might not just think, oh, not another kind of CV. They might think, oh, this might be worth looking at. Um, She also recommends telling detailed stories about your careers and achievements. And this is something we say a lot of the time to substantiate what you're saying. So rather than, for example, saying that you're responsible for booking acts in the student union, which isn't very exciting, you could instead say that you booked carefully selected acts, making double expected profits for the student union. And that's better or better still and putting more detail into it you could say pounced on once in a lifetime acts touring London cajoling them into performing (laughs) one-off gigs on campus and doubling student union profits it's far more descriptive of how you you know how you achieved your success and she says that that's key and um, and I thought this was really interesting because lots of people are experimenting with new formats and if yours isn't the kind of traditional layout that you might be in with a better chance. And also what I really liked about that final example was that it shows a bit of personality. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? so often with CVs, you're just reading the same thing again and again and again. It's really hard to differentiate between people. So anything that kind of shows the employer a bit about who you are, I think is really helpful. Yeah, and that's a point that Claire Whitmell makes quite a lot about the jargon or the, you know, the language that you use in your CV. You don't have to pretend you're kind of Alan Sugar or whatever. You can talk and you can use your own voice, like Harriet says. Lovely. Well, I am looking today at the elevator speech. This is a blog from Anne Wayman, who is a writing coach, ghostwriter and blogger at aboutfreelancewriting.com. And she's actually talking about the ability to sum up who you are and what you do. So if you don't know what the elevator speech is, it's a business idea, beloved of all those kind of marketeers of the 80s, that you should be able to describe yourself and pitch yourself to anybody in any situation between floors in an elevator so really in no more than 30 seconds um and what Anne says is that actually the likelihood of this ever happening and you ever (laughs) having to actually pitch your skills to somebody whilst in an elevator is very very small in fact if you tried it most people would probably get off at the next (laughs) Um, so she said that's not really what we should be focusing on but what is useful is the idea that clarity and having a sense of purpose is really, really important. So she says, clarity is a must if you're to be successful. I tell writers, every writing project needs a purpose statement. Being able to boil that purpose down to a few words is a worthy exercise just for itself. So instead of saying, I want to work in journalism and I want to write about this and I'm really interested in looking at this and I'd also be happy to do X, Y and Z, actually, can you say in one sentence of really no more than five or six words what it is you want? 
Um, and I think this kind of clarity is really important because it gives you an aim and a vision. And I'd also say there's something about having a list of things where you want to go. And a really famous example of this is Michael Heseltine, who famously wrote down everything he wanted to achieve in his career on the back of a napkin and achieved all of them apart from being prime minister. <laughs> and um, But just having it written down so that he could see actually where he was aiming for and what he wanted really helped focus his career. Um, and I think that's something you can take into job searching as well. Actually write down in clear, short statements what it is you're looking for. And hopefully that's going to stop you making 200-odd applications like our last blogger. I wonder if Richard Branson like avoids lifts or cars. <laughs> <laughs> just Hi, my name's Stephen. I really want to work in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you're in a dead-end, boring job and often find yourself daydreaming of packing it all in and moving to New York. In this job market, maybe that's not such a bad idea, says Julian Lindley in this week's Dear Julian. It's a really interesting letter this week from uh, someone who uh, graduated and has got a job working in a kind of administration role in the pension company. And at the age of 25, they are asking, should I just follow my dream and go to New York and work there because that's what they've always wanted to do. My advice, very simply, would be just do it. There is nothing better, I don't think, for your career and for your personal development than to go and take adventures whenever they present themselves. It can do nothing but good for you at 25 because it's it's going to open up your brain, your opportunity your mind, everything will change as a result of that experience. And it's something I have to say I personally regret doing. I threw myself into my career 21. I mean, I had a job before I'd even graduated. And so I never travelled. I turned down the opportunity several times to go and work in both Australia and New York. And now in my advancing years, I and where I have a mortgage, I have responsibility, I have family that I wouldn't want to leave. It's difficult to go and I bloody wish I'd done it at 25 when I had none of those things affecting my life. The big problem that you're going to encounter is how the hell you go about getting permission to work in another country. That's the real issue. Uh, also in the email, the, uh, the writer talks about wanting to change their career as well, to kind of get into publishing, to get into books uh, when they move to New York. I mean, it's a wonderful fantasy. I can see it in my head what that would look like already. The difficulty you're going to encounter by doing that is there are a lot of people in America already that want to do that. And the jobs are much more likely to go to American person because you have to apply for working visa. A company has to sponsor you. There's a lot of expense involved. So in order to get the job, you'd have to prove that you're pretty bloody good. And that in actual fact, you offered something that an American citizen couldn't offer. So whilst it's a wonderful fantasy, I wouldn't pin all my hopes to that. However, what you might want to consider doing is uh, work placements and work experience. Get some inside knowledge and a flavour, if you like, for that publishing world once you're there. And you never know, there may be an opportunity. They might see how great you are and think, actually, we have to give this person a job. So I would treat it more as a kind of working holiday for a year, maybe two years. Rather than, I think if you were to go there with the ambition of, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a job working in publishing, I think you might be disappointed actually. But it certainly beats working in the insurance company. 
That was Julian Lindley, Creative Director at Bauer. Now, we're introducing a new feature this week, a series of podcasts called How I Broke Into. The plan is to interview the grads who recently bagged the roles we all want. At the top banks, the top brands, TV production companies, newspapers and websites and all those sort of things. And so, to kick all this off, we're looking at journalism. Of course, there's plenty you could and should learn from the journos that have spent decades on the news desk and lived to tell the tale. But rather than asking a seasoned hack for career advice, how about someone who knows what it takes to break into journalism now, not five or ten or even twenty years ago, where the only way to get tweets from a newsroom was to have your paper delivered by a pigeon? So, we've invited two fresh-faced hacks to share their career stories and tips with us for a more modern take on getting your first journalism job. So, welcome to former Newcastle English student and FHM staff writer Chris Mandel and The Guardian's trainee media and technology reporter Josh Halliday. Hello both. Hello. Um, Thanks for coming in. Um, Josh, do you want to just tell us in a nutshell Mm. how you got your job here and we'll start from there. Sure. It was hard work and Twitter. I started putting myself out there around the end of 2008 when I saw uh, US journalism students really sort of ahead of the curve, just doing so much more than uh, UK journalism students were doing. They had blogs, really professional-looking CVs online. You, you would Google them and you'd find... It was like they'd been professional marketeers or journalists for years. No one was doing that in the UK. Um, so basically, I just reinvented the wheel, um, did it in the UK. I did a hyper-local site in Sunderland which was kind of a big thing at the time. I didn't deserve the amount of coverage or credit that I got for doing SR2 blog, but it got me some it got me some decent eyeballs and started following people on Twitter like Matt Wells and you know people in the media cuz that's what I was interested in. And it was it was that really, just so it was a really simple process. I never ever thought I would land a job at the Guardian. So tell me a bit about what you did on Twitter. Were you sort of talking to people or just doing the standard sort of commenting on what mm. they were talking about? Yeah, I was I was having conversations with people. I never thought it would be the first foot on the ladder. I just thought it was somewhere to talk about things that were interesting because I was interested in the media, I was interested in technology, and I used to blog about it. But I never thought that anyone would be interested in my opinions, and I never thought, you know, someone especially a senior figure on a UK national paper, but you're just one tweet away from them. And what about you, Chris? I interned at the magazine before I, I was sort of offered paid work there. And I think that was, for me, that was the way... The way in, I think that's the best way in for a lot of um, people wanting to get into magazine journalism. Um, and I, so I, I was there for initially for three months, doing anything I could and everything I could, and picking up work here and doing this and going to this. And um, it just sort of snowballed from there. And I think uh, the more I was there, the more I became sort of dependable, and uh, you know, and I could sort of uh, be relied on to do more work. And I think in the end, it, it was just a natural progression from there, really. Did you do anything particular with your application then that you think helped you get that opportunity? Um, the application, the first stage was quite straightforward, just send stuff in, and then they asked you to write articles. I've read the magazine for several years, so I knew the tone, I was aware what kind of content they like, what they don't, and I think that was what impressed them, is that I wrote copy that could have gone in or could have been suitable for the website straight away. You were writing quite a lot before you even started on your internship. You think yeah. that's quite important I've too. I've done, yeah, I did, I was freelancing during university uh, for the NME and I think that helped as well because I had a bit of experience on sort of national magazines. I'll ask you about the NME in a minute but I want to just ask 
both, starting with you, Josh, because mm. you started this while you were still studying. Do you think that that was kind of give you an advantage that you were thinking about, I need to be job ready almost before I even graduate? I was preparing to be unemployed. You know, the situation when I was about to graduate was that no one would have a job. Yeah. So I was preparing myself, you know, for months of thumb twiddling and sort of self-publishing and trying to get these work placements. But I think it's important to mention that not everyone can get these internships because most of them are based in London. I didn't have friends or family in London, so I wouldn't be able to stay anywhere for free. I think that's one of the horrible situations that a yeah. lot of students find themselves in. So that's where self-publishing and, and setting up your own website comes in. Um, but I was sort of writing about media and, te and technology without... You know, the direct aim of thinking, I want to be on the Guardian's media and technology desk, because that would have just been preposterous. I would have it'd just <laughs> been setting myself up to fail. Um, it was just because, I, it was naturally because I enjoyed it uh, and I wanted to be part of the conversation. I read a lot, so I wanted to, you know, chip, chip in my own two pennies worth without really having any sort of grand ambition about where it was going to go. Part of the battle of getting your first job is putting yourself and your work in front of the right people. Do you think that's kind of what helped you guys? It's almost, you've got to almost be a little bit shameless and show it to as many people as you can. You know, I think if you show it off to as many people as you can, it, the right person will see it, I think. Yeah. It kind of happens naturally with the internet. Someone said that if something's important enough on the internet, then it'll find me. Um, and I think, mm. especially for um, you know, pre-graduation journalists, that's never been true, because if you're doing great work online, innovative stuff, then it'll find the right people, you know, through Twitter, sharing links... That's how, that's how people get discovered these days, rather than, you know, sending um, hard copies and posting them down to the Daily Mail and whatever. I think that's completely you know, by the by. Chris, how did you make contact with the NME? The NME was, um, it just came, it was really quite a strange one. I, I worked at my university newspaper and I was the music editor. And with that, in, in my second year, we had this kind of initiative to do a lot of online stuff. So my cuttings, reviews were online. And I remember getting an email one day uh, from someone I didn't, a name I didn't recognise. It was Emily Mackay. Uh, and it said, oh, are you Chris Mandel? If not, where can I find him? <laughs> and I wow, looked and it had the exciting. signature, uh, the NME and the address. And I thought, oh, do you know, I bet I've bad-mouthed them. In an interview. I bet I've slagged them off and she's tracked me down and she's going to, you know, kick me up the backside. So anyway, I replied. I said, yes, it is me, yeah. And she said, oh, right, it's great. We were just looking for people based in Newcastle to do gig reviews. Like, we'll pay you. If there's any gigs you want to go to, let me know. So I was kind of like, right, OK. Uh, and I spoke to a friend and, and I said, oh, they've offered me some work. She went, well, that's got to be a joke. Like, I don't think they, <laughs> I don't think they go yeah. around offering work to people <laughs> with no experience. And I said, well, I think, I think it's... So anyway, I started going to small gigs. I started, you know, interviewing bands on a small scale it sort of grew a little bit and I would start maybe uh, going to more gigs and doing a bit less work for university <laughs> sort of scales tip that way um, I would often go to London in my holidays and go to the office and meet them and do little bits of work and it just grew from there um, so I suppose I would say that student media is a great way to get good cuttings it's good chance to do work from far away and I think now that Twitter is a lot more prolific, people are always watching. They're always needing new talent, you know. 
yeah, and that is a lovely, really encouraging story. But I think the efforts that kind of Josh put in are stuff that people can probably put into practice more themselves. But this week, there's been another interesting blog online, hasn't there? There's um, a budding journal called Joseph Stashko who's writing that about personal branding and the evolution of getting into the media. And he sort of cited Josh's efforts of sort of building a personal brand and hyperlocal blogging of being, you know, kind of useful for when Josh wanted to get a job a year ago. But that nowadays, that that's not going to cut it. I mean, I'm not sure whether I agree with that. What do you think, Josh? Do you think that what you did would get someone a job today? I think there's just a dangerous preoccupation over personal brand. I think people are making far too much what it actually is. It's just do hard work, let it speak for itself, you know, give it a little push to get out there. But I, I can't help but hear personal brand and think of Stuart Bags from The Apprentice. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> you know, it sounds so like... You do remind you know, me of him, actually. No, Jacob. It's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, think, um, I think you're maybe getting ahead of yourself if you're trying to, trying to promote yourself and you're like, well, what, you know, just like, as, as you said, let your work speak for itself. Uh, it speaks volumes. And just finally, is there anything that you do differently? I mean, when they kind of cringeworthy emails that you sent out, you said, give me a job, I'm a legend, or whatever. I have a, a good one, actually. A really, really cringy story. Um, after I started, this was when I was about 18. Okay, just to, you know, I've, I've grown since <laughs> Ages then. Ages ago. Um, I started doing a bit of work at NME and uh, had a few cuttings. I was starting to feel a bit more ambitious. And there was someone... Uh, who actually works, he does a bit of work at this, at The Guardian, who I knew through someone on Facebook. You're not going to name them? I'm not, I'm too embarrassed <laughs> to say she is it. So someone that I was friends with on Facebook who worked at NME, was friends with this guy who works at The Guardian, he also does stuff at NME. I sent him a private message on Facebook and said, hello, I've done one or two things in NME. Uh, I know you write at The Guardian. If there was any work at The Guardian, could you just send it to me? Here's my Gmail. And every, you know, for the next week, two weeks, three weeks, I was checking. I haven't heard back from him. I haven't heard back from him. And then one day it just hit me in the face. Like, it is the most unprofessional, unlikely, stupidest way of trying to network in inverted commas. And I've just felt so ashamed ever since. I think the best thing to do is don't, you know, if someone did that to me now, I would just wouldn't even reply to it, you know. I'd think, what a fool, you know. And just Aww. for shame. So I think the one thing I've learned is don't, don't try too hard that you're actually bothering people stepping on their toes. Facebook, don't use it for stuff like that. <laughs> I think if someone sent you that message, you should probably tell them that story to save them from yeah. the pain. Don't, yeah, I think maybe you're right, but... Uh, you're yeah. going to start getting those emails now. <laughs> yeah. It would yeah. be quite nice. We'll put, we'll put Chris's email in the show notes. So you can Gmail always... and work <laughs> and my Twitter net. Yeah, I think um, it would be nice for it to come full circle. But I would say, you know, wise up, you know. But, you know, you don't expect to be able to speak to these people and you're not really sure what the social, you know, the social norms are speaking to these people. My mum's my um, a sort of middle-ranking civil servant and my dad's a postie, so I'm not used to speaking to, you know, editors on, on Twitter, really. you just got to learn as you go. Thanks again to Chris Mantle and Josh Halliday. Right, time for the jobs chart and fittingly we've gone for a first steps into the media theme. Harriet and Ali are going to reveal the top 10. Kicking off the chart at 10, it's a reporter role at trade magazine Pulse. And at 9, Panacea Publishing International is looking for an editor for its buying business travel publication. 
Pageant Media is looking for a sub-editor at 8. While Turret Media Publications wants an editor in Abu Dhabi at 7. In at 6, it's a financial journalist via editorial portfolio recruitment. And at 5, new creative talent is looking for a publisher. It's a writer and researcher role at Globe Business Publishing at 4. And at 3, we've got a commissioning executive from Channel 4. One from the top at 2, it's a picture editor at content agency John Brown. But this week's numero uno is a producer position here at The Guardian. And finally, here's Harriet with what we've got coming up on the careers site next week. Monday 23rd, we've got our graduate career clinic. Tuesday 24th is thinking of accountancy. Wednesday 25th, progressing your career in marketing. And on Thursday 26th, using online tools and techniques to get a job in journalism. That brings us to the end of the pod. Thanks to our guests, Chris Mantle and Josh Halliday, to Julian Lindley and the studio team, Harriet Minter and Ali White. Careers Talk was produced by James Crawford. I'm Kerry Eustace. Goodbye.